Well, being 6'10", there are a few places in the world that I feel normal. Not when it comes to clothes shopping, not when it comes to buying cars or houses, especially not when traveling on airplanes or trying to get into amusement park rides. It's adding insult to injury when the amusement park ride I get into has a song playing that says, it's a small world after all. (laughs) The world was not made for people my size. And it often feels like I don't belong. Do you guys ever feel that way? Like you don't belong? Like a stranger, an outcast? I remember the first time I truly felt like I belonged. It was a glorious day. The trailblazers had built their practice facility in Lake Oswego, and I was one of the first to get invited in to um, play in it. In fact, uh, the first picture that came out of the practice facility was of my rear end because I was getting stretched on the court, and it was a good picture of my rear end. I sent it to Kelly, who was back at school at the time we were dating, and I said, hey, nice picture, huh? Question mark. I walked in there. It's okay, you can laugh. That's, it's really irreverent. I know, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't say stuff like that, but that's okay. I walked in, and it was amazing. The doors were my height. The chairs were my size. The tables were my height. The showers were tall. I thought, finally, I can get something clean above my belly button. This is an amazing day. I started to feel like these were my people, like I belonged. Now, all kidding aside, you all know what I'm talking about a little bit, don't you? Not just in a physical sense, but definitely in an emotional and relational sense. We feel like we don't belong. And so many of us spend our whole lives wondering where that place might be, that relationship might be, that thing might be that makes us feel like we belong. And life is a journey of discovery that all of us embark upon, but many do not ever arrive at the destination of belonging. I've sat at deathbeds with people where they express to them, I wish I had just fit in. They express that that they wanted to belong at some point. And so jobs, houses, schools, social clubs, romantic interests, churches, we hop from one to another hoping that the grass will be greener, but when we hop the fence, we land and we see that we're still out of sorts. Maybe they all belong, but do I? And the fastest route to take is usually to grab onto some thing, whether it be a hobby or a sport or an interest or a physical quality or a shared activity, And even in Christian circles, a ministry or a parachurch group or a a conference, and we say, now I belong because I am like the other people there. But deep down, if we search our souls, we each feel like we are still the odd person out. The shallow sense of belonging fades quickly, and the second conflict comes in, we are left wondering, well, maybe they belong, but do I? And the unfortunate fact of sin is that we were created to dwell in Eden, We were created for a paradise of shalom, but the innate rebellion within us made it so that we did not belong there. But at the same time, unfortunately, our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, wandered into the world outside the garden. They realized that because they had the blemished image of God innate within them, they didn't belong out there either. And so we are stuck as their offspring, wondering, do we belong in paradise Or do we belong in the world? We were doomed as humanity to a life of not belonging. On the one hand, we were not made for rebellion, but on the other, we refused relationship. Last week, we learned that Jesus had a plan for this. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has become our peace. 
By his death on the cross, Jesus atoned for our rebellion. It separated us from God and from the garden he intended for us. And he atoned for the sin and separation that played out in our division amongst one another as humans. And this was not to give us simply some shallow assurance that we are good enough or gosh darn it, people like us or that we are loved in the midst of our loneliness. This was to be forever something that removed the separation and and reconciled us to the Father. And in so doing, it reconciled us to one another. It wasn't just a shallow attempt to make us feel better. It was to recreate us as people and place us where we truly belong in the midst of relationship with God and his people. Amen? And so this morning, as we dig into Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, we will see that the work of the Father through his Son, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, does not simply give us a therapeutic shot in the arm where our feelings tell us we're good enough for a moment. Rather, we will see that the gospel of Jesus, enacted within the lives and hearts of his people, places us on a firm foundation that will produce a deeply founded truth, a deeply founded sense, and an experience of belonging in the hearts of each and every one of his followers within his church. And so this brings us As we've been going through Ephesians, this wraps us into the fourth mark that I want to show you of a healthy church. We started to cover it a little bit last week, but you can write these down if you don't already have them. We've been covering in Ephesians that a healthy church, the marks of a healthy church are first that Jesus is at the core of everything they do, everything they say, that there's an attitude of thanksgiving that comes out of worship, that comes out of recognition of the gospel, that they're motivated by the gospel. And that gospel helps them to identify as a new covenant community. That's the fourth mark. And we started to cover it a bit last week. But this week, we're going to jump into it even more. And within this, we will see today that when we fully grasp it, we will not only be able to witness to the glory of Christ in greater abundance, but we will also have an experience of belonging. I said to the two deacons, uh, Brian and Michael, that went with me to the conference, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, and I said, you know, there's really two experiences. A lot of pastors I've heard say, it's not an experience, it's not about how you feel, but the reality is, is it is about how you feel. But here's the problem, we go with the feeling that's shallow and leaves us in an instant, but Jesus wants to bring us the experience and the feeling that lasts, that lasts through the up and the down, that lasts through the good and the bad. It's there whether you are in love or in conflict. He wants to give us that experience, and we can have that experience of belonging if we understand what he's telling us today. And so Paul helps the church at Ephesus refine their identity and find their sense of belonging as a body made up of diverse individuals. And so the first thing that we see is that in the gospel that we've been covering in chapters 1 and 2, in Christ we are given a new status. You can write that down. In Christ, in the gospel, we are given a new status. Two weeks ago, we recognized that even if we wanted to as Gentiles, we could not come near to the temple. As Gentiles in the days of the Jews and the temple that they had, we could not come near the presence of God. There was a middle wall of separation. You might remember this picture. It's a little bit harder to see on that one. Over here, you can see the Gentiles' courtyard and that wall, that middle wall of separation that kept them out. And there was a warning that if they passed that wall, they would be responsible for their own death. 
But last week, we continued Paul's train of thought to understand that Christ has broken down that middle wall of separation, that he has made it possible for Gentiles to step in. And furthermore, because of the cross, he ripped the curtain in two that separated the holy place, the middle of the temple, from the holy of holies, the very presence of God. He made a direct beeline possible for us to get into the presence of God. God's son became our sin for us so that we might become his righteousness, bringing us forgiveness of sins so that we might forever step into his presence. And in so doing, he welcomed us into his people. And Paul's point at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is that we, Gentiles, were saved out of the kingdom of darkness and pulled into the kingdom of light. And this is a large part, this is a great part of what it means to be saved. And so the commonwealth of Israel has enlarged to become the diverse citizenry no longer of just one ethnicity, but now the diverse citizenry of the church, made up of multi-ethnic citizens and saints of the household of God from across the whole world. And so read with me again in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 from last week as it rolls into our text from today, and I'll finish, I'll pause at verse 19. Start with me at verse 14 there. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, meaning Gentiles and Jews, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And that hostility is towards God and towards one another. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, therefore, because of this, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Is that good news? You are no longer strangers and aliens to the creator that formed you. You are fellow citizens and members of the household of God if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. We were those Gentiles standing outside the middle wall of separation. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how spiritual we became, we could not get near to the presence of God. There was nothing we could do. We were strangers and aliens to his presence. And the words here are extremely important. Stranger here, it means someone that is outside the group. Specifically speaking of outside God's covenant people. You cannot call yourself a Christian and not consider yourself part of God's covenant people. Otherwise, you are a stranger to the covenants of promise, just as you were before the cross. And aliens, literally translated, is the word by-dwellers. It's funny to me that we now have this phrase, resident aliens, speaking politically, because it's basically a redundancy, right? It's by-dwellers. You are a resident. You just live near the people that are actually citizens. And the Greek word for it, and I'm just showing this because there's going to be a connection here, the Greek word for fellow citizens is sumpolitai. And if you go on and you look at it, the readers in the Greek would have immediately connected something huge here. I love how the message translation puts this phrase. It says, the kingdom of faith is now your home country. Anybody have a hometown that is not Salem? 
Raise your hand. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because no matter how long you, people tell me this, I moved around too much as a kid. I don't really have a hometown. But people who are, have a hometown, who grew up in a hometown, they, they tell me that no matter how long you live somewhere else, hometown is always your hometown. Well, it's the same thing. Your hometown is now the kingdom of God. The world isn't your hometown. Heaven is. And if you wrap your mind around that, it'll not only blow your mind, it'll change your life. And the Greek readers, they would have understood this and immediately connected it back because it's easier to see in Greek than in English to verse 12 where it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The word commonwealth in the Greek is politeis. And you can see I underlined the, the um, uh, core word there that is um, basically the same word. They would have connected it back and they would have understood that they weren't, the Gentiles weren't citizens, but now they are. And we have become his citizenry together. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, tall or short, fat or skinny. It doesn't matter who you are, what ethnicity you come from. We are his citizenry together. What we miss in the English is this extremely important point. Paul is writing this in a way that he is communicating directly that the citizenry of the commonwealth of Israel has now enlarged to become the citizenry of the church. This is not a replacement of Israel. This is that God's covenant people has enlarged to include anyone who wants to. The core is, is you have to follow the Son, believe in the Son, and believe that he's your King and Savior. It's a new humanity existing within the inaugurated kingdom of God for the purpose, as we'll see in chapter 3, of displaying his glory. Now, this group of people is also called by Paul, saints. Now, depending upon where you come from, maybe you've got a Catholic background or you've got an LDS background, this word saints has all sorts of connotations, right? Maybe you picture the golden plate above the head with the guy standing there with the sign of Christ, looking like this, right? Whatever your connotations are, they're probably a little bit off of what's meant. A saint means someone made holy. Now, the Hebrew claim on this understanding is that one made holy is set apart for a special purpose. The purpose that the holy creator, of, creator God has for them. In other words, to be a saint is to be part of the people set apart for God's use. The people that belong to God. Do you belong to God? Honestly, the way I used to talk about Christ and about God, most people would have thought if they listened to me that God belonged to me. Not that I belong to God. This is very important for us to grasp. How do we belong to God? Well, we were purchased by the blood of his son knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ because Christ conquered the kingdom of darkness and took captive those that wanted to be part of his kingdom, and therefore we are his prisoners. He calls himself a slave, a bondservant. The Greek word is doulos. Because he is purchased off the slave block of sin by a redemptive master that is wonderful to work for. And so these words give us understanding, but we understand not only that we are purchased and belong 
to God. But as we've been learning, if a people belongs to God, who else do they belong to? To the rest of God's people. Primarily those with whom they live in community. I love the NIV translation of Romans 12.5. So in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member of the body belongs to who? All the others. Our status is now redefined. We have been moved from the status of strangers, lonely, aliens, apart, avoidant, dismissive, toward God and toward man and his people and his kingdom. But the good news of the gospel is that that has all been destroyed and he's been bringing us in. And it's inaugurated. We won't know the fullness of it and we'll talk about that in a moment. But guys, the truth of the gospel is you finally belong. Let me say that again. The truth of the gospel is you finally belong. And don't hear me wrong. I am not trying to give you some, gee, isn't it great? You belong. You're great. God loves you and so do people. No, you belong. You have a specific place and purpose in the cosmos. Your life isn't meaningless. It is meaningful because you are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, employed for a specific reason to bring glory to him. And as we're pulled to Yahweh through the work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become members of the household of God, the end of verse 19. In other words, you have been given a new home. You've been given a new home. You could also write down a new family, and we'll talk about that more next week. But a new home. Look at the end of verse 19 in Ephesians there. It says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We can turn to the Old Testament and start to understand what this household is. Let me give you just two. There are 50 or more that I could give you, but let me give you just two understandings of what this word household means. It says, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. What do you think he's talking about there? The temple. You guys are scared to death. I might say something wrong. The temple. He's talking about the temple. Let me give you another one. Psalm 42.4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What is this house of God being discussed here? It's the temple of God. The temple was the place where heaven, the abode of God, And earth, the abode of man, connected. They intertwined. They touched. And so it makes sense that God's people would dwell within his house. They longed to dwell within his house. The problem is that many Christians never made the transition to what the New Testament calls the house of God. You can see it in movies and books as people talk. Many believe the house of God is the church building. I'm going to go up to the house of God, right? Go to the Baptist church. Go to the Methodist church, right? But this is not the truth. Look at what 1 Timothy 3.15 speaks of when it talks about the house of God. Okay? It says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It's interesting. It switches it from just the house to household. There's a relational aspect of the household, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this church that he's talking about is not a building. It's talking about the people. 
Paul's use of the metaphor of a household and a temple are one in the same. And looking back on the history of the temple, we understand that a temple is only as good as the God that takes up residence in it. You guys remember the story of Dagon, right? The half man, half fish, right? And they put the ark in there because they stole it, and Dagon's standing there, this big fish man, and he keeps falling down, and he breaks off his head and his hands. And they walk in the next morning, and what do they say, everybody? They say, Dagon it, right? It's not mine, I stole it. But the reason the hands were cut off and the head was cut off is because you're powerless. There's no power and there's no intelligence. No authority. That's what the head was for. That temple was worthless and it was eventually destroyed because the God that took up residence in it was false and demonic. It had the power of Satan behind it and nothing else. But during the reign of Solomon, the glory of God filled the temple of the people of Israel But unfortunately, because they wouldn't obey their God, God said, I can't be among you anymore. And in Ezekiel, due to the hardened hearts and disobedience of the people of Israel, we're told the Spirit left the temple. And so the people had this building, but they had no one dwelling in it. So they just kind of put their head down and kept doing their religious traditions. It kind of sounds like Christianity today, right? No Spirit in the midst, but keep on doing the traditions. But one day, the Spirit returned. You know how? The incarnate Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, walked into that temple and did his work to begin cleansing it. And he goes and he confronts them and says this. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You see, they were still stuck. Well, our temple is this building, but the Spirit of God didn't dwell there. And Jesus knew the Spirit of God was fully contained and fully dwelt within him. And so he says, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But, John says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus knew that the temple was no longer the true temple. He was now the temple. And so when asked by his disciples if he thought it was an impressive thing to see this temple, what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus left the temple and was going away, Matthew 24 says when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. In other words, check out what we've done as a people, Jesus. Isn't it cool? And he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Roughly 30 to 35 years later, it came true when the Romans came in and literally burnt it to the ground. And in the fire, the gold seeped into the cracks of the rocks, and so they would heave over these massive boulders and rocks, these stones that had been dressed and fit perfectly so they could get to the gold underneath. Jesus knew the temple would be destroyed and not need to be rebuilt. Why? Because the new covenant was going to be inaugurated by him. And the Spirit of God would dwell in the hearts of his people and their relationships with one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's look now at the structure of this house that Paul is trying to get us to understand is us. Look at Ephesians 2.20. It says that we are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul says that at the base are the apostles and the prophets. And if you read enough commentaries, there's debate on what this is saying. Is this referring to the Old Testament new? Basically, what it means 
is that we are founded on the, the word that was proclaimed in the Old Testament and the New. The message of the good news of Jesus Christ that has been present from Genesis 3 onward. And their message in ministry is what we stand upon. Therefore, the necessary implication of this is that if we stand on anything else, our own opinions, our own understanding of what this word is, our own feelings, our own ideas of who God is and what he commands, the necessary implication is that we may not be within the household of God. Remember what Jesus said? Those that follow, meaning obey my words, they're founded on the rock. And the rains come, it doesn't matter. You found yourself on anything else. Good luck. These two testaments, the Old and the New, testify of Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, many of us might be used to the idea of the cornerstone as the kind of fancy rock that's up about, you know, yay high in the corner of a building that says 1910, right? Or, or the building, the, the beginning of the organization within it. But the true cornerstone was far more important. It sat at the base of the building under the surface of the ground and rose up from the ground to be as if, as it were, a stake around which everything else was measured and built. Around which everything else was measured and hewn and eventually placed. Measured and hewn and eventually placed. Now let me break these down quickly for you. You're going to want to write those down. Measured and hewn and eventually placed. These stones were first measured. In comparison to the pure cornerstone of Christ, we as living stones, which we will see in a moment, are rugged and unrefined by our sin. We must understand that we have been measured and we have been found wanting. You know when a building is built correctly because you see that every brick has a place, every stone has a place, the mortar in between is very thin. They only need a little bit. When I do masonry work in my backyard, I need about this much masonry in between, this much cement in between. It looks like a three-year-old did it. Why? Because I'm not skilled. I'm not skilled at the measuring. I'm not skilled at the cutting to make hewn stone. And the only solution for us as living stones that are rough around the edges is that he might take our place and die for our sins so that his righteousness might be ours and we might be, in a sense, selected to be justified and made righteous. But see, the reality is, is that you can't just take an unhewn stone out of the quarry and shove it into the wall. It has to be based in measurement off of the cornerstone and then you have to do the work to make it hewn stone, dressed stone. And so then, from justification, we enter into a life of sanctification, a lifelong process in which the Holy Spirit works within us by the word of God in the midst of our relationships, within the body of believers to begin knocking off our rough edges. This is the process of transformation and transforming us into the images of the cornerstone so that we might find our rightful place within the body of Christ within his temple. Not only measured and hewn, but then placed based upon the cornerstone. There will come a day in which we will see Christ face to face in glory. And this is called glorification. And this is where we will finally see him as he is and understand fully how we belong 
in his kingdom. It's not totally clear yet, but one day we will understand where we belong. And so it logically follows then that each of us as members of this household are to be fit into this building as separate and individual bricks. But our individual position matters little if we do not take stock of how we are placed in accordance with the other bricks. Let me say this again. Our individual position matters little if we do not take stock of how we are placed in accordance with the other bricks. Guys, what is a brick that is left alone lying on the ground? It's a rock, useful for nothing. Only when it is placed on top of other bricks, held in place by bricks on either side, supporting bricks above it, is it useful for the purposes of the temple. And all of it has to be based off the cornerstone. It is so fun right now, my kids, my boys, they're seven. And my daughter, she's four, but she's really like 38 in the way that she lives life. It's amazing. She's four going on like 45. But my boys, they're finally figuring stuff out, and it's, it's thanks to some of their friends who've helped them out. But you ever, how many of you played with Legos, right? Anybody? Right? Okay, if you, you haven't, you're un-American. Go do it after church, okay? But it's so funny. When we first get Legos, what do we do? When I was five or six, you take the, the, the four-by-twos, and what do you do? You put four-by-two upon four-by-two upon four-by-two, and then you put that on the board, and then you do another one right next to it, and then you do another one right next to it. And what happens? They each individually, like, fall over, Right? because they're not actually structured on anything. So what do they learn to do? Well, they learn to make a cornerstone. You, you fit a cornerstone down, and then what do you do? You build the bricks not directly on top of each other, but over a little bit. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You go and you try and break that wall when there are four walls. It's impossible. Legos are like cement, dude. But you got them standing next to each other and you're in trouble. They're all going to fall down. Well, unfortunately, I think the Christian church pictures ourselves as a bunch of four-by-twos stacked on top of each other waiting for heaven. We're not connected to the cornerstone because we're not connected to each other. The reality is, is we will fall. That's why so many Christians fall is they have no support. When the rains come, when the hard things of life hit, they're by themselves and they cry out to God, where are you? And he's looking at you going, my body is right in front of you. You want a hug? Don't talk to me. Talk to my body. But I want you to comfort me. They're right there. But I want you to speak to me. Your pastor's talking to you right now. We want the body of Christ, but we're unwilling to look to the body of Christ for it. And this is the reality of the Christian church today. And if we could only grasp this, this process of being formed and built into the temple of God, we would understand and act like we are, and this is the next point, a new temple, a new temple. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 21 through 22, 2, 21 through 22. We're founded upon the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, verse 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. Built together. Built together. Built together. Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Remember that a temple is a place where the kingdom or abode of God meets the abode of man. And Paul is here saying that this temple is the household of God. The people of God built upon the truth of God's gospel that has been in place since Genesis chapter 3. And in this new temple, look at what is happening. We're not there completely perfected, but any any of us who know construction, right, we know that it's a process. So pay attention with me to the verbs. Whenever you're reading the Bible, okay, here's a Bible study tip. Pay attention to the verbs. Always pay attention to the verbs. Pick them out, study them, okay? Let's look at the verbs here. The stones within this temple are, verse 20, being built. There's the process. So anyone who believes that when they prayed the prayer, um, they're done, uh, that's just false, okay? Heard a great quote yesterday from Artaxerdia, one of my professors. He said, I firmly believe in once saved, always saved. I do not firmly believe in once prayed, always saved. Love that. I think that's great. It's a process. The stones within this building are being built, verse 20. Next, they're being joined together, verse 21. Also in verse 21, they're growing into a holy temple. And verse 22, being built together. Paul speaks of the global church here through verse 21, but then in verse 22, notice what he says, in him you, Ephesians, also. So he's given the broad church, then he's saying you also, you, Ephesians, your small body. He's narrowing it down to the local body of the church of Ephesus. Now, I think you can realize that each of you are the stones he's talking about here. I've given you enough information, but let's go ahead and go to the right to 1 Peter, and I want to paint for you a little bit more of the picture. Okay, go to 1 Peter with me. All right, 1 Peter 2, and look at verse 1. 1 Peter 2, 1. Okay, and remember that he's writing this to the elect exiles of dispersion across Asia Minor. And he's saying to the saints, he's saying to the Christians, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In other words, stop acting like the world. Like newborn infants, because we're newborn when we become Christians, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Underline that, highlight that, circle that. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember that belief, that word in the Greek means not just mental assent, it means faithfulness and obedience. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, he's saying to the saints, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all things we've already talked about. That you may proclaim, what? What's our purpose? That you may proclaim. The word could also be preach. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does this sound like Ephesians? Absolutely. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God. Peter, like Paul, uses this imagery of a temple being built, and it's based solely upon the cornerstone of Jesus, 
by whom and upon whom every other stone is measured, hewn, and placed. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. In other words, we are God's covenant people. And we proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us by the way we live life in putting away malice and deceit, hypocrisy and slander. We base our life off of the pure spiritual milk of his word. In doing so, we are a witness to God's goodness. Amen? We preach the good news of God's redemptive plan with our lives. The people are the message. And notice the wording that Peter uses very particularly here at the end of verse 2, that by it you may grow up into salvation. That we may grow up into salvation? Often people speak of salvation as if it's a possession, but here the picture is far different. It compares wonderfully with what Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 4. Go back there with me to Ephesians and look at Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In other words, those with giftings and especially those that are leaders. For what purpose? To equip who? Who are the saints? Raise your hand if you're a saint. Okay? The saints for the work of ministry or service. For building up, there it is again, the body of Christ. Why doesn't it say for the work of going and converting the non-believers? Because if we build up the body of Christ, guess what will naturally happen? Non-believers will be drawn to the light and life of Christ. That's the truth of what this is saying. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, instead, what are we to do as Christians? Rather than doing all those wacky things, what are we to do? Speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that, what? It builds itself up in love. There's that experience. That's the experience all of us desire. And you see, the fullness of God's redemptive plan is the building up of the body of Christ until its fullness has been achieved. And this is the beautiful, majestic, picturesque vision that John the Revelator gives us. He tells us what it will be like when all of us as hewn stones are perfectly dressed and perfectly placed and perfectly measured off of that cornerstone. And while we are in the process of that construction project right now, one day it will be complete. You know what it'll look like? Turn with me to Revelation. And you will see the vision of what the church will look like. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the restored creation, folks. This harkens back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the earth, right? Created what was up there, the heavens, and what was down there, the earth. He saw a new earth restored. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. The sea is the place out of which the chaos comes, the chaos monster in Jewish thought. And so this is not, he's going to get rid of the earth. He's going to burn it up in fire and start it over again. He's going to restore what was already here, okay? And the, the sea cast away is that chaos will be gone. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Who's the bride in the New Testament? The church. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is a finalization of the new covenant. This language is straight out of Jeremiah 31, 31, where Israel is promised the new covenant people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Are you guys as excited for that as I am? I mean, maybe it's because I got very little sleep last night, but are you as excited as I am for that? Like, this isn't just me as a Bible geek. This is like, this day will be amazing. No more sin, no more conflict, no more weirdness in relationship. We will all be dressed in hewn stones, sitting in wonderful peace next to each other. No more background politics of how churches function and this person backbiting this person and this person not doing this. It'll all be beautiful and peaceful. Oh, I can hardly wait for that day. Not just as a pastor, but as a stone. I want to be in that temple. And then, if you look down a little bit, look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, the city, that, that must be where the temple is. No, look down at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, all of these metaphors and pictures play together to show us what our end will be. Guys, here's your vision of heaven. It's not the ultimate retirement of 401k in the sky. This is what you're going for. Folks, if you have your entire heart set on what happens when you retire so you can go do what you want for the first time in your life, you're missing the point. Retirement's not bad. It's a good thing. But man, this is what you're headed for. This is your purpose. This is your end. This is your vision. John shows us the finished city of God in which God and his people dwell, but he calls it the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The wife of God was a title previously reserved only for the covenant people of God, known as Israel. But here it's stated to the church. It's connected with the title of the prepared bride, which is the New Testament phrase for the church of God. In other words, John is shown by God a vision of the church, completed, grown up into the fullness of Christ, grown up into the fullness of glory, the fullness of salvation. And if you haven't guessed yet, this is not a physical temple. That's bad theology, guys. I'm sorry. If you believe that, that's bad theology. Why would God rebuild the physical temple when he's happy with the temple that is his church? We are the temple. We just haven't been finalized yet. And right now, we are being hewn so that we can be delivered to that place in glory where we are pieced together into the full temple of God. 
And perhaps this is the image that we are given in the building of Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, we're told that when the house, the temple of God was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. In other words, all the hard work of knocking off the edges happened there at the quarry before it was brought to the place where it would be fully placed. This age is meant for the sharpening so that in the next age we might be perfectly fit into the city of God. Dear church, do you see why it is so futile to look at salvation only as an individual event? An individualistic exercise that happened when a person prayed a prayer back then. Yes, we were justified. But the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is growing us into who we are and who we are to be within God's household, within God's building, the new covenant people of God, the church. So now that we've been given this amazing understanding of God's plan to grow up, God's church into its full potential as the place of his dwelling. Let's make a little bit of application. Here's your application for today. The first thing that we must do is we must change our view of the church of God to be in accordance with this high view that he gives us through scripture. We must have a high view of the church. What this tells us first is what the church is not. Let me give you a couple of things here. First, the church is not in existence to be a theological or emotional service provider to meet the needs of consumers that hop from one service provider to another. The church is not to be that. Can I just lovingly say to you, if you are a person that likes to buffet, shop, with your churches and your Bible studies and your women's groups and your men's groups and your prophecy studies and your podcasts and your repent. That's not what you're meant for. Lovingly, I say that to you. I know that's the style of today's church. It's not meant to be a service provider to meet the needs of consumers. Secondly, it is not a place in which the sole focus is on getting people saved as if salvation is only in the past tense and then moving on to the next person who needs saving. Yes, as Christians, we rightly say we have been saved, we have been justified, but the work of salvation is also an ongoing work that will not be finalized until glory. And that's why the majority of what I say to you in the Lord's day, with the Lord's people, in the Lord's gathering, is for the Lord's people. And if you don't know Jesus, we want you here so badly. We want you to experience the love of Christ and the understanding that he wants you as you are in this moment. You don't need to fix yourself up. That works after the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And so if you are a non-believer today, if you're a person that isn't walking with Christ, or maybe you grew up in a home where you heard Christian things, but you've heard today and you realize, I am not in that temple. I'm founded on my own opinions and feelings and what the world tells me, then I beg of you to come talk to me after service. I'll be right back there against that wall. I want to talk to you about what it is to know the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and how acknowledging that and responding to that will draw you into the place of the Holy Spirit that does work in your life to move you into that place of being hewn stone. Thirdly, the church is not a gathering place for individual rocks that want no interaction with one another. 
Guys, that's a rock patch. That's not a temple. A temple requires stones to be hewn, to touch, to interact, to fit in with one another. Every stone requires the stones that support it, that hold it in place, and other stones to which it can give support, all based upon the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Guys, imagine if bricks could talk, and you walk up to a wall, and the cornerstone is right here, and there's a brick way up here, and that brick talks, and it says, I'm so glad that the only thing I have to worry about is my relationship to the cornerstone. What would all the rest of the bricks around it say? Hey, what about us? We're the whole way you're connected to the cornerstone. Yeah, but it's just about me and that cornerstone, man. I don't care about the rest of you. Think about the ludicrousy of that, and yet that is how the church thinks. Use the metaphor. We're meant to need one another. Well, that's what the church is not. Let me tell you what the church is. Based upon these metaphors we have seen today is that this new covenant community is actually a community of dress stone, measured, hewn, and placed all in accordance with the person, work, and word of the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the core of everything. If we, have no, if we don't have him, we have nothing. He is not just the means by which we gain forgiveness from our sins. He is the one upon which we base our lives and our relationships. And if we follow his word and spirit to do its work, we will be properly hewn and find that we become perfectly measured and fitted for our place within the larger temple of Christ known as the church. And what the gospel does is not only save us and bring us into the covenant community of God's people, but it also begins to affect us in ways that we find we are convicted within the relationships within our church. All of the imperatives to love one another, to put away fleshly, selfish ways of relating, to speak the truth in love, all of these begin to hone our edges and knock off all those pieces that make us unable to fit into our place within the temple for which we are intended. We are not to operate in passive aggressiveness or cloak our refusal to love one another in the false label of being nice to avoid controversy. We as living stones need to be taken and hewn, having all our rough edges knocked off so that we might be useful and so that we find out where we belong. To do so takes work from everyone involved. Now question for you, is this process, imagine yourself as a rock and the mason comes with the hammer and the chisel. Does that feel good if you're that rock? No, in fact, it feels very uncomfortable. And this is why Proverbs 27, 17 tells us, it gives us another metaphor that's similar. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another, or one woman sharpens another. It takes two blades in concert with one another to sharpen each other. And similarly, it takes two living stones, both speaking the truth in love, to knock the hard edges off of one another. Uh, my dad, uh, was a, he grew up on the coast, and he used to like to get rocks and kind of uh, hone them down and make them nice and pretty agates. Well, what do you do? What's the best way to, to do that? Well, you put them in a rock tumbler. And what happens with those rocks? 
They start knocking off the rough edges and eventually both get hewn down into a place where they're both beautiful and they show the glory that's within. This is the point of the church. It takes two living stones, both speaking the truth in love to knock the hard edges off of one another. But here's the key. We must realize that for this to occur, for someone to receive the truth in love, they must know that we are committed to them, that we love them, and that we will not leave them. See, the reason that the church has such a bad name in the world right now is because of Facebook and Instagram and Fox News. We go out and we tell everyone the truth in love. And here's the reality for us. None of them have asked us for it. And so, what we should rightly do is speak to those who have asked us for it. And the only way that they've asked us for it is if we have a reciprocal mutual respecting love for one another. We've shown each other that we will not leave each other nor forsake each other, and we have the common goal of being fit together, grown up, and built into the place where the Spirit of God dwells so brightly that the world around us cannot help but be blinded by the light of God's reconciliatory glory. And why does this witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because only in the miraculous, reconciliatory power of the cross could work like this happen in such a way that in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, God himself found a way to reconcile us to him and to reconcile us to one another. Only in his power of the cross and the resurrection and the victory over the sin and death that has enslaved us Only in the midst of these reconciled relationships can we show that we are the perfectly dressed and hewn stones within the glorious temple of of, of God. If you were a Jew back in the day, you wouldn't say, "Come, come over here and I want to introduce you to Yahweh. Where would you send him? You'd say, go to the temple and I'll introduce you to Yahweh. We are the temple. And so when we invite people to know Jesus, we innately invite them to know us. Not just be acquaintances, but to know us. And to see the Spirit working to perform sanctification through us and in us. True belonging comes when a family of believers commits to one another that regardless of what happens... We will walk with each other through the good times and the bad, through the times of conflict and the times of reconciliation. If you find that separation is occurring, it is your job, it is your mission statement, it is your purpose. Whether it happens here or in the kid's wing or with the kid's teacher, whether it happened out there with another Christian, it is your job to step into the hard work of the sharpening. Dear flock, the greatest witness that I have seen in the last six years in the midst of this church has been in the midst of these moments. It has been such a blessing and an honor to sit with many of you in the midst of those gospel conversations, those membership conversations we've been having, and to see through tears that you know you have a place and that you belong and that you are loved because when you were broken, when there was brokenness in your life, maybe it was even because of sin, you saw that this church loved you and walked with you and helped you. That is why I wake up every morning to do this job. 
Those are the moments that Jesus looks upon this church and he says, well done, faithful servant. Those are the moments that will draw the world to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I have seen those witnesses coming in the midst of you taking on the hard work, the hard cost of sharpening one another. And so the process is simple, yet oh, so difficult and costly. The preached word of God proclaimed in our lives convicts us of the rough spots that must be hewn. And we lovingly need one another to cut down those spots so that we might properly fit together next to one another. Not based on anything other than the love of Christ. Supporting one another and holding one another in place. And this is why the rhythm and expectation that we have of this church is so important. We preach the word unapologetically. And we live the word in the midst of our Sunday gathering, our community groups, and soon our discipleship groups and throughout the week. Ministering to one another by entering into conflict. Not because conflict is fun, but because we know that at the end of conflict, with faithfulness and commitment, we will refine ourselves and grow into what Christ calls us to be. And so each of us this morning must decide how we will then live. One option is to avoid conflict, communicating in passiveness, or worse, the cancer of the church, passive aggressiveness. Trying to keep a shallow peace falsely labeled nice, in which growth can never occur and is actually just veiled division. Or, the better option, the option that I believe this text and many others are calling us to, is the option to pursue reconciliation and true peace at every turn, even though it is uncomfortable. Will we be open to and even seek out hearing the truth in love? Will we be ready to give it when we feel pressed by the Holy Spirit to do so? Will we live our lives for the sake of the other? I believe Mission Fellowship that you are a church in which iron sharpens iron and stone fashions stone so that we as a church can grow up into the fullness of the beautiful dwelling place of Christ. An experience of true belonging is here for the taking. It just comes with a cost. And what I have seen from so many of you that are sitting here before me today is that you've counted the cost and you're moving forward with boldness. And I see in front of me a rock ready to be hewn, a beautiful bride, a glorious temple, being built up so that Christ will be glorified. I've often heard it spoken by artists, I am not one myself, that when they look at a blank canvas or they see a rock that they're about to chisel, they see a piece of artwork inside and they simply need to find it. That is what I see sitting before me. And I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, with a reliance upon the faithful word of God, we will grow up into the church that Christ calls us to be. And I believe we've begun that process. Let's boldly move forward together in this vision, growing up together in Christ Jesus. And if you are not a person who believes you are part of that vision, then I invite you into it. And I desire to speak with you love you and show you that you have a place here.